Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, We are back in the book of Luke this morning. We're in Luke chapter 2. You can grab one of those Bibles uh, in the seat backs in front of you, and we'd love to jump in together. Um, We are just in the last few weeks back into the book of Luke, and we'll be working our way through it slowly over the next several weeks, Um, and excited to jump in. So we're going to begin in verse 12, and the story we're looking at here. Uh, this morning, the text is the story of the calling of Jesus' disciples. Uh, the disciples were those who, who shared primary space with Jesus over the course of the, the three years of his ministry. And so think of Jesus as being a, roughly a 30, 30-ish year old adult. And there is this group of teenagers that he's going to invest his life in. And so in this text here, we're learning about the beginning of the, the calling of those, the identification of those disciples And the first things that he does is he calls his disciples. Um, I think it's important to stay in the book of Luke. Luke is one of three books that tell about, chronologically tell the story of the life of Jesus. John being the fourth, it's a little bit different. But basically, we have four books that tell the story of the life of Jesus. And, And each author does it differently. And we'll be learning a lot about the uniquenesses of Luke in the way that he tells the story of the life of Jesus uh, over the next months as we're, we spend time in this book. Um, but Luke, every, every one of these stories, every one of these accounts or testimonies about the life of Jesus has a different beginning, has a slightly different way of telling the story. And this is really important because as Jesus begins his sort of earthly ministry, the shift from being kind of a regular guy to be, to be doing incredible things in the world, and he calls these disciples to himself the text and the way that, that Jesus starts his ministry are, are what we call programmatic texts. They're very, really important because they kind of set the stage for how the story is going to be told. And that's what we're looking at here this morning. So in Luke chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 12 through 26. And I'm going to read first verses 12 through 16. It says, One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. When morning came... He called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated as apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who is also called a zealot, Judas, son of James, 
and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, as before he lists, or before we're told the names of the disciples he called to himself, we're given a clue by Luke of two different things, two things that he says, the way, the way that he calls them is really distinct, and he does it differently than the other testimonies about Jesus. We're told that he calls disciples to himself. The word disciples means learner, kind of like student, one who's going to be trained. And it was very customary in this time that when boys, young men who were um, of teenage, young teenagers, 13, 14, 15, would be oftentimes called by a rabbi, if they were lucky enough to be called by a rabbi. And that relationship over the ensuing years would be very, very close. They would be modeling their life after them. They wouldn't just be learning from them like book learning. They would be actually be following in their footsteps. They would be copying the gestures. They would be listening to everything that the rabbi taught him. And that's the kind of relationship we're seeing set up here. Now, he calls them disciples, learners, but then he also says he also designated as apostles. Now, we're not sure why he brings this up because he certainly wouldn't have called them apostles right away because uh, apostle was, was not a religious term, but it was a term for someone who was a messenger, someone who embodied or carried a message into the world. These young teenagers, and I repeat, teenagers were not yet sort of qualified to be messengers or apostles. But Luke is telling us this, I think, to give us uh, an idea about his priority here, which is to tell us that what happens next is going to be really important for who they become. What happens next here in the text is going to be really, really important for who these young men are becoming, these young teenagers with developing brains. So in verse 17, we're told the next thing that they do. It says in verse 17, it says, he went down with them, his disciples, and stood on a level place. The other texts say it was actually a mountainside. This is called a plain. So a large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region, from Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because the power was coming from him in healing them all. Now in that passage, the word healing is mentioned twice. And so having just followed this unique designation of this is a group of people who are on a learning path. This is on-the-job training. And the first thing Jesus does is he gathers the people around him who want to learn from him, and he heals them. He heals them. Good? Um, this is the first account of Jesus forming these young men, shaping them. And we're given a, we're given a clue that what, what Jesus is about to talk about and the theme he's going to introduce here is about the kingdom of God. And it's probably the most important and popular thing that Jesus talks about over and over again. It's the thing he talks about more than money. It's the thing he talks about more than spirits. It's the thing he talks about more than prayer. It's almost as if the, his single focus is, always comes back to this concept of the kingdom of God. Now, when we hear that term, and it's a term we talk, around a lot, talk about a lot here at DCC because it's important to us and how we understand who Jesus was and what he was doing in the world. Some people see the kingdom of God as something that's future. It's a future reality that's coming. But there's clearly times that Jesus actually is talking about the kingdom of God and he tells stories about it as being something that's emerging and present, that's in the here and now. Some people don't think about a future reality. Predominantly more liberal scholars don't want to talk about the idea of a, a coming eternal kingdom because honestly, Jesus only gives sort of vague uh, allusions to a future that beyond death. 
And it, a lot of people believe that the kingdom of God is only here and now. And I think we'll see in this text and other texts coming in the coming weeks is that the kingdom is both a present reality that's, that's emerging, that's, that's inaugurated, they would say. It's something that, that's happening to them. It's, it's right here, right now. But it's also a future reality that will be moved toward fullness. So it's now, but not yet. Does that make sense? It's present here and now, and it's moving toward completion. So as he's doing that, what's interesting is that he heals. He heals us almost, and he heals almost to say, like, this is what's going to characterize what this whole thing's about. Healing, restoration. And then Jesus launches into what, what we oftentimes know as the Sermon on the Mount, maybe his most popular uh, sermon he ever gives. In this case, it's a sermon on the plain, uh, on the account they're given. They're in this low place. And we're told in verse 20... Um, that Jesus begins to teach. And it says in verse 20, he does this. It says, looking at his disciples. Now, it doesn't say looking at the crowd, looking at all the people who were healed. We're told by Luke that he's speaking distinctly to his disciples. And he says this, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. You know, you've heard that line before. I know you have. It's one of the most popular things that Jesus says. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when, when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. So he gives this, this series of blessings. He gives a series of blessings to people who are suffering, people who are poor, people who are hungry, people who are left out, people who are sad, and people who are suffering because of who Jesus is. And it's almost as if he's speaking about a time that is to come. Because the reality is no one's suffering yet because of Jesus. He's, he's kind of the new guy in the scene. But he's saying for those who will suffer... Blessings on you. And then it shifts. It shifts in verse 24 to um, caution. And it says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. As Jesus introduces this idea of the kingdom of God, saying those who are poor, he says, Your, yours is the kingdom of God. I think what Jesus is doing is speaking to his disciples clearly. He's, giving, he's saying there's a way of seeing and being in the world, and this is really, really important. What we're about to embark on, talking to his disciples, what the journey we're about to go on together is that it's one about understanding what the kingdom of God is all about. And it starts with healing. You're here, you're here and you're being formed to be a healing presence in the world. And so Jesus is going to model that for his disciples. And then he gives them, a, he gives them some caution. He's saying, we're coming here for the poor. We're coming for those who are left out. We're coming for those who are hungry. We're coming to bring good news 
and blessing and pronounce God's favor for those who are left out. And we're here to, to preach caution for those who are rich, those who are comforted, and those who are well-fed, and those who laugh now. And, and we, we know that he's speaking to his disciples, but I think about us right now as these words fall on our ears, as we sit here today, 2,000 years removed from this time, we have to ask ourselves, um, which people are we, right? The inevitable question comes up for us. Are we being restored? Are we being blessed? Are we being comforted? Or are we of those who are being warned, to whom Jesus is, is proclaiming a woe, a caution? Well, I'm not sure it's either. I'm not sure it's either because what we are told is he's speaking to his disciples. And I think the most, the, the most normal thing for us to do is to put ourselves in the shoes of the same disciples because in, ma- in many ways, we too are learners. We too are those being trained and formed and shaped. And if, if you've decided to model your life after Jesus, if you commit to be a person who's trying to form your life in the way of Jesus, then certainly our feet should stand surely in the shoes of the disciples. Jesus is giving them a way of seeing the world. You see, there was the kingdom of God that he spoke about, but then oftentimes Jesus would juxtapose the kingdom of God to the kingdom of this world. And, and when you hear that, you probably have all kinds of like stereotypes that come up for you. What are worldly things, right? Typically in religious culture, we think of drinking and, you know, some places even like dancing and, um, you know, all the temptations of the world. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is talking about There's a way of seeing the world, and he wants to give them something to hold on to so they can have a bearing as they think about what it's going to mean to be his disciples, to be learning from him. You know, oftentimes we put a lot of emphasis on a future heaven and hell. Modern modern Christianity has done this over and over again. And this, this passage does seem to be speaking about a future reality, a coming kingdom, a reality in the future. But I think here's what Jesus is actually saying. He's saying to the first group, if what you experience right now in this world is hell, it won't always be this way. If your life is characterized by by poverty, if your life is characterizing being left out, having not, by hunger, by sorrow, in being spoken wrongly about and being hated and insulted and rejected, it will not always be this way. But he's also saying to another group of people, if what you experience now, the comfort in your lives, the disconnection from those who are suffering, um, the comfort, the food in your bellies, if you think this is as good as it gets, you don't see it. You don't see it. You're missing out on what God and what I, Jesus, am doing in the world. You know, we want to ask the question, are we, are we being comforted or warned here? And I think the disciples would be asking the very same question. And I think Jesus' caution to them is, if you live solidly in either one, you've missed out. So let me ask this question. What do you see? How do you see the world? I mean, just think about Denver. Um, if you spend any time outside of Denver and you've been here a while, I was just back in Cincinnati where I grew up with my family. Um, or if you go to other cities like St. Louis, I'm not choosing St. Louis as a, a, you know, a particularly profound example. I'm just choosing it as a random place. 
But like if you spend time in St. Louis and you come to Denver, you realize we live in a really cool place, right? Like a really cool place. Um, it's great here. I remember when I moved to Denver, it was 2006. Um, you know, in 2006, it was a lot easier to, city to come to and, and find, your, find your footing, you know? I, I, I didn't know anybody. My wife and I didn't know anybody. We showed up here. We found jobs in a short order. Um, in, in 2006 in Denver, there was really cool coffee shops, but you knew where all of them were. There were great breweries, and you knew where all of them were. But over the course of, like, the last 15 years, I couldn't tell you where half the breweries are, half the cool coffee shops. Part of that is my age um, and, and having responsibilities in life. Um, but far beyond that, you begin to realize this city has grown in incredible ways. And in one sense, on one side of the narrative of what we see in Denver, it's a beautiful place. It's an incredible place. I mean, the climate, it was beautiful weather today, guys, let's be honest. Um, we live in an amazing place. We're coming into the, the, this like, unique sliver of time of Colorado, and the aspens will be changing in a few weeks. And it's just not too hot. It's not too cold. It's sweatshirts in the evening. It's wonderful. The humidity is low. We have accessibility to incredible recreation. We have a relatively strong... I just tipped off something on my phone. I'm sorry, Siri. Um, <laughs> We have a relatively strong economy. There's a lot of opportunities here. There's so many fun things. And if you're a resource person, and if you're established here, and if you're a property owner in the last decade in Denver, you've got to feel pretty good about the city, right? And what happens is if that is your place in life, then the reality is like, you can just get into that world. You can get into that mindset. And you can find yourself in relative, relative comfort. And when you compare the reality of your life, you can find yourself only talking to your friends about the property values of the home you're living in. Or you can find yourself slipping into um, just thinking about small luxuries you might be saving up for. And you begin to easily fall into this sort of a way of seeing and being in the world that's characterized by sort of making the life of comfort you want to enjoy. Certainly we have struggles and things come around from now and again, but life can easily find its way into a very comfortable path. There's also another way of seeing Denver, isn't there? It, for all the resources and opportunities, it's, if we're honest, the reality is only a, a portion of people that live here can really take advantage of those opportunities. I mean, the cost of living is so high in Denver, we're, we're, we're quickly on a trajectory and have been for a long time to be like many of the coastal cities of New York and San Francisco, uh, in Seattle, where it's really, really hard to, 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 to make a living, to be able to afford housing. And if you're not a landowner, if you don't own property, or if you have, don't have an incredible education, haven't found a great job, a lot of people who live here just to make it work are working multiple jobs, and there's no time for recreation, or there's no extra margin in our finances to enjoy those coffee shops or breweries, or restaurants, and great luxuries that we want to enjoy, that we're heralded for. There's no time to go to the mountains and enjoy the beautiful recreation uh, of God's creation that so many of us enjoy, and, and, or want to enjoy, and that we're known for. Denver, like all cities, is a place of haves and have-nots. It's a place of great beauty and opportunity, but it's also a great place of great pain and great brokenness. And I think what Jesus is saying here is like how you see the world, 
is going to narrate how you live in that world. How you understand your city and your life and your place within it will narrate and dictate how you go about living in that place. What do you see? Which city do you see? Um, But clearly, I don't want to soften the text either. Clearly, I don't want to soften the text because the reality is passages like this remind us something else about who Jesus is and what he's setting his disciples up for. And that is, God has an obvious bias for the poor. He does. He has a bias for the poor. Um, Years ago, uh, in the late 60s, a man named Gustavo Gutierrez um, coined the phrase, uh, we have it here on the thing, it's uh, on, the, on the slide, it says, God's preferential option for the poor. This was a way, as a liberation theologian, he was interested in, in studying the Bible and studying, uh, as a theologian, theologian, reflecting on who God was, began to realize that, I mean, we've known this for years, but really, from the time of the prophets to the time of Jesus, you begin to re- read the text and the long narratives of Scripture and the reflections on um, those who were impoverished, those who are poor, those who are left out, you begin to realize God has a unique bias for the poor. God's very character is to, to, to be biased toward, and he extends a preferential option for the poor. You can't avoid it. If you've read Matthew 25, that whole chapter, um, it's really, really disorienting, realizing the judgment for those who, who fail to do good and do justice towards those who are poor and left out. God's judgment is, seems to be hanging over those who don't do right by God's, but by God's people who are poor and left out, those who are vulnerable. Uh, but it goes beyond that. The reason why I think I can say with firm conviction that God's heart is in fact for the poor, it's also still for you. And it's also, if you're not poor, it's also still for you. And it was also still for his disciples. He wanted to understand that God's economy was different than this one. I mean, over the last few weeks, we've been fighting in our culture, at least in the Christian world, if you've seen anything on social media, about loan forgiveness and debt forgiveness, right? And if I'm really honest with you, as someone who went to school, and I still have student loans, and I've been just like plugging away at those things, I was like, in one sense, overjoyed to realize that, man, I'm going to have $10,000 of my loan, like loans forgiven. That's like game changer, Right? How many here, if you'll dare share, how many people have loans forgiven this last few weeks? Come on now. Yeah, look around. It's a lot of people. It's really impacted us. There's another part of me with friends who have paid off their loans and friends that I envy that are like, have really, really gotten after it and have worked really hard over that. It does kind of run roughshod on some of my like values a little bit and feeling a little bit uncomfortable. And now I'm someone who has oriented his life around his vocation, around caring for the poor. I'm all for just policies. But I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, it kind of like made me uncomfortable a little bit because I had some of those butts coming up in me around this whole thing. It, but what's interesting is we're having that fight based on this world and this economy, economy that is based on that, the concept of scarcity, that there are limited resources for all. And what Jesus is introducing here is something different. He's talking about the kingdom of God, which is about abundance, because there is no limitations to God's grace, God's goodness, God's favor, and God's love. And so his challenge here to them 
is, is, a, is a challenge that goes beyond feeling guilty for, for what you do or don't do. Him saying that God's favor, God's grace is for you all. John Deere, in reflecting on uh, Gustavo Gutierrez's claim of God's preference for the poor, says this. He says, those of us who are first world North Americans may bristle at this theology that asks them to let go of their privileges and make that option for the poor and seek Christ in their struggle for justice. But Gutierrez assures us that this movement of the Spirit among us not only hastens God's reign of justice and peace, beginning with those in extreme poverty, it leads to new blessings. This is good news. We, too, are being liberated. We, too, are being liberated. You know, see, God's preferential option for the poor benefits those of us who aren't poor as well. Because the reason I believe that God has a bias for the poor is that he also has a bias for the poor in us. God is not just restoring material things. He's restoring everything. One of the other writers, Matthew, in his take on this gospel, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And we can't actually set those, which are, those things which are material and physical up against those things that are spiritual or emotional. Those of us who are downcast, who may have resources but suffer, there's also God's preference for the poor. God's bias for the poor is for the haves and have-nots. Because my liberation as a resource person is bound up with the liberation of a person who suffers physically. God does have bias for the poor because God has bias for me as well. You see, it all has to go together. Um, What I found is that God oftentimes is doing, what God is doing in me is what God is doing through me. I'll say that again. What God is doing in me is what God is doing through me. Everything has to go together. You can take a vow of poverty. You can be a saint on the outside. And you can live cloistered away with nothing, no, no, no material ends except for a small few, few luxuries and spend a lifetime that way. But your internal world can be a cesspool of resentment and misery. Jesus warns against this out of life to have this outside appearance of righteousness, but have an inside that he would call a rotting grave, an outside demonstration of piety and having nothing but the inside of ourselves rotting away. But you can also live a privileged privileged life, seeking internal harmony and comfort, and you can never move toward those who are suffering. We can find ourselves cloistered away in our small luxuries and working on meditations and maybe doing some really, really important work, healing trauma in our lives and maybe stepping into contemplative prayer and and, and really feeling a deep connection with God, but our life never crosses over with those who are suffering. And I think both sides of this reality is what Jesus is warning against. And I think it's a call for us to get into the messy middle. You know, we oftentimes think of Jesus as being one who was sort of cloistered away, this this sort of like saint who floated through the world um, and was so pious and good. But the reality was, actually, we're told in the Gospels that Jesus was accused of being a drunkard because of who, who he hung out with. 
He hung out with tax collectors who were, who were seen as complete criminals in their day. They were ostracized by the community. He hung out with wealthy people and ate in their homes, but he oftentimes brought along prostitutes and sinners with them. He, in his day and time, it was like a total abomination to be around women in inappropriate ways, and Jesus countless times finds himself separated, set apart, speaking life and connecting with a woman. You know, Jesus actually was accused of being wrapped up in the things of this world because Jesus' life was characterized by the messy middle. Oftentimes in our world, we, we get in our political dualities of liberal and conservative, and I think Jesus' life breaks all of those things. And we're given some ambiguity here, and I don't mean there's ambiguity in every text, but in this text specifically, I think it's important. Spiritual and material, it doesn't matter. Jesus is on the side of the poor. Jesus is about restoring everything. Walking with Jesus means serving the poor and working for policies and measures that change unfair systems of injustice, period. And it also means addressing the poor and needy places inside of all of us. So blessed are you who weep because of the traumas in your life. Blessed are you who are hungry, whose bellies are not full. Blessed are you who are rejected and left out. Blessed are you who, who do righteous acts and live weirdly among your friends and family because of your preference for the poor, the way you orient your life around uh, justice. Blessed are you who are peacemakers, who are living in the messy middle in our world. God does through us what God is doing in us. All of that work and restoration in our internal world needs to be coherent with our external world. And all that advocacy and work on behalf of the poor and, and, and breaking cycles of injustice in our world need to be in concert with harmony and restoration and healing in our own lives. Because if we don't have both, we're missing out. If we don't have both, we're missing out. In verse 26, the last verse in this section, it says, Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for, what is, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Jesus is speaking to these young disciples, and he's telling them to think back of some of the prophets that were heralded at a time, that they were well-known, they were of good repute, and they had good reputation, but they were hypocrites. They were hypocrites because how they were seen on the outside is not in concert with who they were on the inside. And over the course of time, looking back, they can see that they led the people of God astray and their lives were a cautionary tale. And here Jesus is pointing back saying, it all has to go together. Everything has to go in tandem. Everything goes together. Um, as I finish today in our time together, I want to give you two opportunities. And I'm not usually really practical uh, when I finish the teaching, but I want to be really, really practical today. If what I'm saying about peacemaking in our lives, being a peacemaker in the world on the outside, but also a peacemaker on the inside and tending to our emotional world, if that, if that stirs something in you, um, I want to encourage you to consider signing up for the Peacemaking Pathway. That's going to start about three weeks from now. It goes for eight weeks. You'll be at the group of other people who call DCC home. And we'll be in a, a, a mix of large group teaching sessions that will just offer a few things, not lectures, not another sermon, just a little bit of content that will give us some opportunities to, uh, 
to reflect. And then you'll have a group of people, a small group that you'll walk, that you'll be in relationship and community with over eight weeks. And we're going to talk about these things. And our goal is to ask this question, what does it look like to be an everyday peacemaker? Or more, more namely, what does it look like for you in your particular skin, in your particular world, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? One who's tending to their internal world, but also working toward advocacy for the least around them. And secondly, the other opportunity I want to talk to you about is about immigrants. Um, over the last five or six years, immigration has been a big deal with Denver Community Church, and it's a big part of our work with Project Renew. A lot of that work has been complicated uh, through COVID uh, and difficult, um, but there are some emerging opportunities. One that you're going to hear about more is an opportunity to do visitations uh, with folks who are asylum seekers, people from different parts of the world, a lot from West Africa, many from Central America, and a bunch of other places that are in detention just a few miles away from here at the Aurora Detention Center. And we have an opportunity to go and spend time with those folks. Um, it's it's kind of clunky. It's kind of hard. It can be a little bit uncomfortable, but you'll be coached by some others that have done it before. And it's a really, really good opportunity to help someone who is isolated and lonely and desperate to connect. And you're going to be changed by it. I guarantee it. The other one is, you might remember some of you around three years ago in 2019, um, it was during the previous administration, and there was a huge border crisis. And many, there was just thousands upon thousands of folks coming from Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador in Central America. And they were coming to the border. And that crisis has ebbed and flowed over time. It has not stopped since that time. But during that time, they were so overrun, particularly in a, uh, a really beautiful ministry called Annunciation House in El Paso, Texas. They're so overrun that they were shipping migrants on buses, literally people who had just got, gotten to the border, were, were asking for asylum. These were kids, these were men, they were women, they were families. And they, they brought them here to Denver, and we had the opportunity over the course of several weeks to host over 100 people here at Denver Community Church. Um, things changed at the border, and the buses were no longer feasible after a few months. But three years later, we're back in the same spot. I got a call last night from uh, Ruben, who leads Annunciation House. And he just said, hey, I'm just reaching out to everyone who helped us three years ago because we're back in the same place. And so I'm, I'm told this is not a maybe, it's inevitability. You may have already seen it in the news. Um, migrants who are asylum seekers who are incredibly, incredibly vulnerable will be coming to Denver in the next several weeks. And Denver Community Church and Project Renew, we want to be involved. We want to be involved in, in helping the ways that we can getting outside of ourselves, and that can happen in a variety of different ways. If you're a Spanish speaker, we could really use your help with translation. We're helping people to, who are temporarily displaced here to get connected to family members in different parts of the U.S. And so if that stirs you, um, it was incredibly, incredibly meaningful work um, three years ago. Um, some people just provided meals, and that was huge and essential. Other people came and helped with logistics. Some people took time off work. Other people drove people to the airport. It took a village, folks, like it takes a church, all right? And so if that stirs you, you want to be involved, you may say, I don't know what to do. I don't know if I feel equipped, but I'm interested to learn more. Um, after the service, back in the back, there will be a, um, just a, a small placard with a QR code, and you can just scan that with your phone. It'll take you to a Google form. Where you, we'll just get your name, your basic contact info, and then just a couple questions about ways that you can be involved, ways you might be interested in contributing. All right? 
Thank you. Thanks for hearing me out. Let's do it. Peacemaking pathway, helping displaced people. Let's pray. God, thank you for our community. Thanks for so many people as I share and think about these things. I thank you that I know so many people here who live day in and day out in the messy middle. Uh, they are about healing and restoration. I bless them and I thank them. I'm so grateful for this community. And for however you're stirring us this morning, God, if we're disturbed by these woes, I pray that you would, that you would uh, continue that and disturb us, discomfort us, God. Um, God, if, if, you're, if someone's here and they say, no, this is, these, uh, I need to hear these words of blessing because I am feeling poor. I am left out. I am left behind. Lord, I pray blessings on them. I pray your hand and heart would be so close to them and they would feel that this morning. God, we love you. We thank you for this time together in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.